to a certain extent, Stephen's saying exactly the, like the same thing and, and a different thing at the same time. So he's saying that, look, finance and economics does a really good job of talking about finance and economics, but trees are not economics. Like trees are not finances. These are vastly different things and trying to pretend that us who are doing finance and economics and banking can turn around and use our not particularly perfect finance ideas to somehow do better than climate scientists and ecologists and marine biologists and people who have spent as much time of their life studying that stuff. Like, does that, like, how does that make sense to anyone? Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with sixth-year MMT activist Andrew Churguin. Andrew graduated from the University of Sydney with a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry and Pure Mathematics and a Master's in Secondary Teaching. Andrew's introduction to modern money theory or MMT was in 2015 when he stumbled on the blog of University of Newcastle economics professor and original MMT developer Bill Mitchell. Andrew spent the next nine months reading five years of Bill's blog posts. For those who are familiar with the blog, they will understand how this is no small feat. The heart of our conversation, however, was influenced by a February 2021 Facebook post by Stephen Hale, the text of which can be found in the show notes. Stephen is an economics professor at the University of Adelaide and the author of the 2018 book, Economics for Sustainable Prosperity, which is a good introduction to MMT. In the post, Stephen discusses how neoclassical economists don't stay in their lane. What this means is that economists impose themselves onto and dominate conversations about healthcare when they should be led by healthcare professionals and their patients. They dominate conversations about education that should be led by educators and their students. And to bring it back to today's episode, neoclassical economists dominate conversations about mitigating the climate crisis that should be led by experts in the field, such as climate scientists, energy specialists, chemists, and so on. This domination is in the form of forcing all conversation and concepts to be expressed in financial terms, as exemplified by the how are you going to pay for it question. This essentially gives those in power and their economists veto power over every facet of our lives, subjecting us 
to their biases, ignorance, and ideology. It prevents the true experts from ever being able to complete their highly complex and critical conversations, and it also keeps the public unaware of the depths of the problems they face. Finance is a purely human-created concept. Therefore, purely financial crises are also purely human-created concepts. This means we can prevent and mitigate financial crises merely by choosing to do so. It also implies that the Great Depression and the Great Financial Crisis are largely man-made disasters caused and exacerbated by the actions and inactions of those in power and their economists. And yet this is who we allow to dominate highly complex conversations on topics that are largely outside of human control, such as mitigating the climate crisis. In other words, if neoclassical economists can't get their own house in order, then why do we allow them to be in charge of every house? And of course, when problems are framed in financial terms, then problems that face the rich are always more profitable to solve than those that face the poor. An analogy I keep coming back to is viewing a child only through their report card. Doing this will do nothing to help a student if she is hungry and homeless and suffering from abuse. It is unlikely those problems will even be seen. In the same way, forcing the climate crisis and other real-world problems to be seen through a financial lens basically guarantees that those problems will never be acknowledged, let alone properly and fully dealt with. Part two of our conversation turns decidedly dark as we consider our fate as a species and our choices as parents of young children if we continue to leave the climate crisis in the hands of neoclassical economists. There's no solving a problem if you don't understand its depth. So buckle up. But that's for next week. For now, let's start part one of my conversation with Andrew Churgwin. Actually, the, the first time I ever recorded online was with Tony Weston. He's, he's, he's in England. Um, yep. And so he was my first international uh, interview. And mm -hmm. I, didn't know, I didn't know about Zencaster back then. So I, I, we actually tried to record with Audacity and, right. and screen capture and whatever. And, but it okay. ended up that it didn't work. I could only record my end and he could only record his end. So what we did yeah. was... Yeah, no, that's, sorry. So um, some of the podcasting that I, I, I do um, involves people who are like recording six different people playing the same game. And so the rough technique is that everyone records their own Audacity track with a with a basically a count track at the start and then all uploads it into like a google drive and then the person running it just rips them all down glues them together in audacity trims and edits as needed um, yeah and that's exactly what tony and i did but we didn't yeah. understand we were trying to get it work to one thing to record both of us and uh, so that was pretty stressful at first yeah. but, but that is exactly what ended up happening yeah um yeah, so but 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 Zencasters is uh pretty smooth, although uh one time I did a ten person interview and Oof. uh it, it was a 
and and the people were all over the United States, and uh, it was a technical nightmare. Uh, yep. Once I finally got all the tracks, yeah, it it was fine. Sure, I mean you know it was a lot of work, ten yeah. tracks, but but it, but once I got all the tracks, it was fine. But getting yep. all the tracks was a real nightmare. Yeah, so no, that, that, like that I had to get like it could be. Yeah, so don't use Zencaster for more than two people. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so anyway, what's up, man? <laughs> uh, yeah, not, not a lot. Just, you know, parent stuff, kids. Stuff. I didn't realize your kids were so young. I, I think I thought that your kids were grown up. No, no, no. I've got a, I've got a just recently six and just recently eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have a eleven year old and fourteen year old boys. Ah, two years old. Right, right. Ah, uh, being a parent. Yeah. It is not stuff. not for the faint of heart. <laughs> I, I've I've recently discovered. <laughs> True enough. True enough. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Andrew, thank you for yeah. coming on. Really nice to finally meet you. <laughs> not a problem in a non-textual form <laughs> yeah um well why don't why don't we get why don't we get right uh, right started uh would you please introduce yourself and then uh why don't you start off from uh uh your life and thinking before you discovered mnt thanks for coming on sure no that's not a problem so my background is um basically hard science i've um i've got a degree in chemistry in particularly kind of abstract bits of chemistry and in abstract mathematics from University of Sydney. And for ages, lots of stuff about how economics talked about things seemed way off. It didn't necessarily seem like it should behave the way that it did. Um, and like to give you an idea, one of the lecturers that I worked with used to figure out how molecules bend their shape at a rate of a billion billion times a second so he basically has a really fancy device that takes one followed by 12 zero pictures of molecules a second so i'm used to weird and esoteric right like how does a molecule change one followed by 12 12 zero times a second um <laughs> but stuff in in like neoclassical economic stuff just didn't quite make sense and it didn't necessarily make heaps of sense when I'd kind of brushed up against Marxism and look, Sydney university Marxists at the time were not exactly a friendly bunch. Um, <laughs> they were pretty combative about a lot of stuff. So kind of the combination of the two meant that I stayed kind of vaguely in touch, but not right in on top of, you know, like economics as a serious, this, that, something or other else. Um, so that's kind of the academic stuff. On the other end of things, like I was the, the the middle class kid in the poor suburbs. So like my neighbors on one side who used to take care of me when my mom got sick of me when I was a little kid consisted of a woman who would detail cars. So getting in and vacuuming the carpets out before you sell them secondhand and like scraping all the air conditioner ducts clean and all that sort of stuff, right? So like really fussy climb around inside a car and clean it out stuff and he used to drive petrol tankers and or clothing bins and or um like national postal service trucks and that was his life and on the other side 
uh, were a bunch of people who owned greyhounds and engaged in uh, businesses that you don't necessarily report on your tax form. So they used to have those. And so, like, that's where I grew up, you know, out of suburbs, surrounded by poor people, but being pretty heavily middle class. And then hit university, economics didn't make sense, tried to hit it with the various bits of science brain that I knew, uh, you know, stuff about, and that didn't make sense. And then I've forgotten exactly how, but I ended up on Bill Mitchell's blog. And Bill Mitchell's blog is a is a hard curveball start to MMT, right? Yeah. There was no kind of like gentle ease in with a nice like Randy Ray lecture. No, it was just like Bill Mitchell's blog. And then I slogged through it and went, wait a second. Yeah, this makes complete sense. This works. This works from like a maths brain perspective. This works. And so it went from there. It, I, I read about five years worth of Bill's blog in about nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then just started soaking up other stuff. For people who don't know Bill's blog, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> it's yeah. Not, it's not an easy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bill, look, Bill Mitchell, for the best and worst of him, is very much an academic and he loves about a 5,000 word essay and he can crack those out daily. So all power to him for being a far faster writer than me and being able to just really power in on topics like day in, day out for years. So yeah, so I smashed my way through heaps of his blog and then started getting out in the guys, uh, other people. So, you what, know. Year, what years are you talking about now? Uh, I'm talking probably about 2015, about 2015, 2016. It just started making a lot more sense. And, you know, like, I know poverty existed, like, really up close, right? Like that same neighbor I was talking about beforehand, they once cried to my mother because their fridge was broken and they couldn't put milk in tea for my mum, right? So like my mum, who's reasonably middle-class, goes out and buys her a fridge, right? And it's like discussions of, do you pay a phone bill or do you eat this week? Mm. So like economics at like the, that really pointy end of a what what does it look like to be to be poor? And, and what does poverty kind of look like up front has kind of always lingered around and then on the other side of some of that, right, I'm an urban kid, but my mum's family is all very, very rural. I've got two uncles that live on the land in a small country town. All of my mother's mother's side were dairy farming up the coast. Almost all of them got out of it at basically the same time. And it wasn't because they, you know, all just got too old. It was there was decisions made about how milk production worked in Australia, and it drove them off the land. And their farms were bought up by bigger kind of agricultural aggregator type companies. So, so I've seen lots of the stuff that affects people in you know lower classes who do spend their life working with their hands to to make stuff, um, and and how economics works for them. So it was a big change to hit a kind of economics that, for starters, kind of stayed in its lane. Um, and that's going to sound bad, but like I'm a maths nerd and a chemistry nerd. The, I can give you simple facts about how chemistry works that just blows people's heads because like everything you touched, what you think you touched, doesn't actually exist, right? Like at a, at a real like rock bottom physics chemistry level, the idea of a surface 
doesn't exist. It's just not there. Because when we go to like molecules and, and atoms, surface makes no sense. It just doesn't exist. <laughs> but then when you get to something like a pen, you can pick it up, you can rub it, you can touch it, you know that surface exists. So like surface exists, right? We, we feel it, we touch it, we see it, we do stuff with it, right? Sandpaper works, right? But at like a molecule level, surface doesn't exist. So economics always struck me as having this weird problem where it didn't like to stay in its lane because take the classic like sunk cost fallacy stuff, right? Like, you know, you, you go to the movie and you find out that you've lost the movie ticket that you bought with 20 bucks earlier the day. What do you do? Most people buy another movie ticket. But if you go to the movies and you don't have the 20 that was in your pocket that you thought you had, you've only got 20, you thought you had 40, then a lot of people don't buy the movie ticket then, even though it's exactly the same situation, right? I've lost a $20 movie ticket. Mm -hmm. For some reason in our brain, it feels different to I lost a $20 note. They're kind of the same. So that sort of stuff makes heaps of sense, right? Like there's psychology about it. People sit down, they do studies, da, 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 da. but then suddenly you throw macroeconomics into this stuff and people don't do that stuff. Like people on the aggregate behave apparently behave the same way as they do in the small stuff. And that, that didn't make sense because that's really not what people do. And so you kind of roll all that together and then MMT just cracked open that why doesn't it work thing. And the basic answer is, is because everyone's looking at it upside down and not staying in their lane. And then later I hit like other bits of research, like serious esoteric stuff that like 90% of people don't give a flying crap about. Like, there's a thing I love dragging up, and most people, I'm sure, do not actually get just how big a thing this is for a maths nerd. But there's a thing called the Sun and Shine Mantel de Bro theorem, which great big long waffly name thing. Um, Say it again. Sun and Shine Mantel de Bro. The de Bro in it is like de Bro arrow. So if you do economic stuff, you'll hear about de Bro arrow or you'll hear about like arrow conjectures or all that sort of stuff. So the de Bro there is the same one that worked with arrow and Sonnenschein, Mantel and de Bro are basically, they're maths nerds who like playing with economics equations rather than like people who like playing with ring and field theory like I did at university. But without knowing like super hard details of some of their equations, they hit mathematically something that is kind of scary and cool and just like the phenomenon of surface in chemistry, right? So I told you before, like chemistry says when you get to small stuff, surface doesn't exist. Okay. Um, basically what they said is you, me, everyone else who goes about their daily life doing their ordinary stuff, that works really good when it's just you or me or like three of us in the room. But once you get to like a city, all that stuff out the window, gone, doesn't apply, doesn't work. All this other new stuff appears. Because a lot of people have kind of gotten like a theory as in like law and order on the TV, right? Like theory of the crime, right? Which is like a conjecture, right? Mm -hmm. It's a guess. Theory when it comes to like mathematics proofs means 
Now, this sucker is ironclad watertight. There is not a good way around this. And so these guys put it forward as a mathematical theory. They, like, they proved that if you try to start with like one or two people and you get all the stuff that you're supposed to know about how they behave, and then you just start adding more and more people into the mix and keep on going and keep on going and keep on going, there's a point in there somewhere where all of that like n human behavior for just one person stops. It just doesn't work anymore. And you get all this I mean, new like set of behavior. Psychology and knock-on effects. I mean, right. Okay. But it's but it, but it but it's also like there's a diff, there's there's mob psychology, right? Like there's specifically psychology of groups. Um, group psychology, sure. Yeah, right. Like mob and group psychology, where what happens when you have twenty people in a room? What happens if you have a hundred people in a room? How do they behave? Do they behave the same, or do they behave differently, or what's going on? And so, Sun and Shine Mental the Bro basically say for economics, there is a large scale and there is a small scale and they don't talk to each other nicely if at all and that's a mathematical theory so there's kind of no good way around it unless you find out either they didn't know enough information or they got one of the basic ideas at the bottom of it wrong you're talking and about them, they got yeah, as in the, they and this are they Mandel and the yeah, Son and Shine, Mantel and Debro. Yeah, okay. um, so like from a science brain, if you want to disprove something, there's only two ways to do it, right? When you set out your idea, you say, "I think this works this way, and this works this way, and this works this way," and like here's my list of things that I'm assuming this is how it works already. Like we already know this stuff, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to play with it and put it together and glue it and tinker with it. And then I'll see what that set of ideas produces. And if I do all my working out neatly, then whatever I get at the conclusion is as true as the list of stuff I started with. Mm -hmm. Right? So the only way to say that the end bit is not true, right? And in the case of like what people do on a big scale has almost no link to what people do on a small scale. Mm -hmm. To break that, you've either got to say, Sun and Shine Mantel, the bro's list at the start, didn't have enough things in it. There's other things that they needed to put in there. They just didn't know that they should be in there. Mm -hmm. Or actually like number four and number nine in their list, those are wrong. Mm -hmm. We know that those are wrong. And then you go back and you fix them. And like, so that's the scientific method for dealing with proofs of anything, right? Is you go back to that list and you go, right, are any of these wrong? Do we have science that tells us that these are wrong? Do we have measurements? Have we done studies? Have we, like, does any of this stuff not work? And if any of it doesn't work, then everything after it gets thrown out automatically. But if the stuff at the front doesn't get thrown out, then the stuff that comes at the end, like, that's it. You just get that. That's how it works. So, so yeah. So, so for me, that, that one's a big one because it does just drive that wedge in and basically says that like the psychology stuff of microeconomics, right? How people react when they lose a $20 note behaves totally differently to how does an economy work when you flood money into it? How does, how does an economy work when you've got poverty around in it? And so having those two apart made it kind of so much easier to handle heaps of what people say about kind of all sorts of topics about MMT. 
like MMT ignores this. Well, yeah, it does because you're kind of asking, like, yeah, you're asking a fish to climb a tree here. It's it's (laughs) a different ballpark, right? You're not getting that this thing's talking about something else entirely. So, yeah, so that's kind of, that's what, it's like a 15-minute version of how I got to where I got to. Um, you will That's great. You got a two-hour interview, so <laughs> yeah, yeah right. keep going. Um, no, well, so you were saying, okay, so basically you're saying that hard science and hard mathematics informs you accurately, properly about economics. And that's interesting in the sense that it is often improperly stated that economics is a hard science where we know that it's not. And also that mathematics is overly important, inappropriately important in economics. So it's interesting. It's kind of a contradiction in a way. And yet for you, you have found something in hard science that informs you properly about economics and same with mathematics that it informs you properly about economics. So I don't know if you can elaborate on that. Sure. That's interesting. Um, so, so as a, as a maths person, the thing that I have a huge beef with constantly is the stuff that people assume is how it works, right? And like that's true with chemistry as well, right? So I, my, my chemistry background, if you want to say, I assume this thing is true about molecules, like the first thing any PhD student, if you said, I assume this stuff is true about this process, the first thing your lecturer is going to do is, well, there's the library over there come back with like 20 references that back you up on this. And if you find like references that don't back you up, you better go digging into them too, right? So like every assumption you make, you have to interrogate it. It has to hold because if it doesn't hold, then everything that comes after it is just bull crap. The maths background I have is in abstract maths. So the best way to describe it, the kind of maths that I really liked was, hey, what happens if we break this bit? And to give you an idea, like some of my favorite subjects were things like perspective geometry, which sounds kind of odd, but it's kind of easy to figure out what it's trying to do. So you've stood like in a street or between train tracks or between like two things that are supposed to be in nice straight lines to each other. And if you stand there and stare somewhere off there in the distance, it looks like they should meet up, but you know that they're parallel and they should never touch. So your brain goes, they kind of meet, but it also goes, but they never meet. And so this branch of mathematics goes, hey, what happens if we break the rule that parallel lines don't ever meet? What happens if we say parallel lines meet infinitely far away so you could never walk there, but like mathematically, that's interesting. So when I hit economics, I start going, okay, so let's look at like what Milton Friedman says, right? And Milton Friedman says that people are like this. Okay. So if I go ask like a social scientist, do people behave like this individually? And they go, no. Then my immediate thought is, why hasn't everyone thrown Milton Friedman out the window? Because if people don't behave like that, what are we doing? We've got fantasy land here. Forget it. This is not reality. The social scientists or the behavioral scientists or the psychologists are all telling us Nah, people do this stuff. This is how people behave. We do like longish studies on this stuff. And then you've got, you know, people from economics saying, 
well, a person does this thing. It's like, no. Like my classic favorite too for that stuff is things like, so humans are supposed to be utilitarian. And in its psychology sense, that means that humans always kind of just take the option that gets the job done. But rats are way more utilitarian than humans on almost every front. Rats will eat cardboard. Rats will uh-huh. eat their own dead, right? Uh-huh. Like if a rat dies of a disease, another rat nearby goes, I think I see lunch for two days. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Humans, we get weirded out by like removed body parts of our own. We insist on like particular care and disposal. We are way not utilitarian, right? Like most of us don't look at like three-day-old pizza and go, you know what? Like if you nuke it up a really long way, maybe it won't kill me, right? No, most of us go three-day pizza on the bench. Yeah, it should probably pitch that. <laughs> Rats will eat the box as well, right? Like, <laughs> so, but so that's the thing, right? So if humans are supposed to be utilitarian, well, there's plenty of psychology that says we're not. And then... The other classic is is that we're supposed to be rational like rationality in humans that's that's it no we are not rational we have so many weird things like the the thing with the the movie ticket versus a 20 dollar note right mm-hmm. and it's just with so much basic kind of psychology work out there and social science work and sociology that just goes no humans don't do these things we are weird animals that do not do these things at all. Like goats are more utilitarian than us, right? Like goats, goats eat sheets, right? <laughs> a goat will eat a sheet off the line, right? <laughs> Although I, I think Americans don't really do lines anymore, but like that's super common in Australia. Like it will, it will eat clothing. Why? Because it's there and it, it, it wants to eat it. Humans? No, nah, we're, we're nothing like that. So my thing was, is that there was all this stuff where economics just goes, no, 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 clearly it must be right. Why? Because it made us some beautiful equations. I'm like, dude. So what's the difference between their horrible math and your good math and their horrible science and your good science? Right. So, So I think the big thing is, is that in chemistry and in mathematics, it always comes down to the the assumptions that you've made before you started work like if you knock over an assumption at the bottom of whatever you're doing for work then that's it gone like whole areas just evaporate when, when i used to do high school teaching my, my favorite bit of teaching any course was the fact that i would get the chance to repeatedly teach the idea that getting something tragically wrong can get you the nobel prize for physics uh, uh. And people are always like, what do you mean? Like getting you wrong gets you the best prize in physics ever. Yeah, getting it wrong, really, really wrong gets you the best prize in physics. And it's two guys by the name of Mickelson and Morley. Um, And Mickelson and Morley basically said, hey, if there's like a wind thing that light travels in, right, for just for light, right, that works out in space, then in theory, what we can do is we can pretend that the earth is a really big boat. And if we put it in the, put like a, a detector for light in this boat and then turn it through 90 degrees, then we should get different answers. Like if we're a boat in a river, if we turn it, 
then we should get a different answer for how fast things are traveling, depending on whether we're kind of going across the stream of the river or up and down the stream of the river. Okay. And they did it. And they didn't get a different answer. And they did it some more. And they didn't get a different answer. And then they published a paper which basically said, hi, we did this experiment. We thought this was the way that it works. We were very, very wrong. Please accept our paper saying we were very, very wrong. And it got him a Nobel Prize. <laughs> right? So, so what I'm saying is, is that like in physics, at least in the past, physics cherished being utterly, completely, 100% wrong, owning up to it, and explaining how and why it was horribly wrong. And if you do that, you can get Nobel Prizes. Okay. Right? right? And so... It doesn't to, sound like they learned anything, aside but, from eliminating one possibility. Right, but they eliminated it carefully, precisely, with lots of measurement, and then publicly so said, the, we got it wrong. But this is a good thing. Yeah, this what is a great thing. A good thing. Okay, that's different right. than the neoclassical right. being wrong and getting a Nobel Prize and so-called Nobel Prize in economics. Right. So, so what I'm saying then on the flip side is, is that if someone turned around and said, hey, you know how we've assumed for ages that humans are utilitarian, rational, blah, 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 blah this list of stuff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down and I'm going to figure out what economics looks like if I throw out the utilitarian bit. What do my equations tell me? Do the equations that I now have, if I put them against like real life stuff, people doing things, do these things give me answers that are kind of the same? Do they not? If they don't, what other things might I have wrong or might I not have included? And then you go back. And so like that iterative process of like, here's what, how I think it works. Here's what I think I should get as answers. Here are the answers the real world gives me, right? Like how do I fix that? And then repeat the cycle over and over and over again. Like that's, that's kind of the scientific method and it's basic, right? Um, and I find from engaging with bits of academic stuff and gauging with, to a certain extent, like probably people who feel that they are quite expert in economics, that one of the things that they are super resistant to is that cycle of like, here's a thing, here's what it should do, here's what happens in the real world, how did I get the first thing wrong? That cycle doesn't happen. Usually what you seem to get is, here's how I think it works, here's some beautiful equations, the world tells me different answers. Ah, clearly the world is wrong. Maybe I need to adjust, like tweak some settings in my equations so that they kind of produce answers a bit like, a bit like the real world. Either or like the world, the real world's just kind of wrong. The world that we want. Um, okay, so basically, it's it's just as simple. It seems to be just that you can tell that the math that you're talking about and the science that you're talking about that informs you properly. It simply applies to the real world. Yeah, and and it's also that presumption that like if I write down some really beautiful equations and then I look at the real world and the real world tells me like the sky should be the, the real world tells me the sky is green and my maths equations come out and tell me the sky should be like a, a highlighter pink color. If I look out the window and it's not highlighter pink, then a trained chemist goes, "Whatever told me highlighter pink got it wrong, so I fix that." Right, like I don't assume that the world is that the world has like a blue sky, that that's the wrong answer. No, 
my work that says the world sky should be highlighted pink, that stuff is wrong. I need to fix that because, you know, look out the window, buddy. That's how it works. The world is just there. That's how the world works. Fix your maths. Let me push that actually one tiny bit. How do you know your eyes aren't flawed? Right, exactly. And so that's when the, the wider scientific method comes in because any work that you can't hand to someone else to reproduce is crud, right? Like that's historically, that's the purpose of a scientific journal is to say, I did this on my bench in my lab. I got these results. Here's how I did it. And then ostensibly other people around the world go, well, we'll take his stuff and we'll do it with our equipment and see how close the two answers are. And if the answers are kind of good, then we're great. Because if you can't reproduce the answer somewhere else, then there's something else going on. So if you told me that the sky doesn't look blue, and for me it is blue, then there's only two things that could be wrong here. Either you and me don't see the same, or the sky somehow does two different colors at the same time. So I now need to poke around for which one of those is the right answer. So with with the whose eyes work best, well, then you start doing things like going, okay, here are 10,000 people. How commonly do people say the sky is green? Right. But like if my maths work is still telling highlighter pink, then it's not the green sky people or the blue sky people that got it wrong. Um, hmm. It's my maths and whatever went into that. And if I've done my maths carefully, then that means that the only thing that can be wrong is how I think the world works at the start. It's actually pretty simple. It's actually right. pretty simple. They're, they're abusing science and math because it doesn't match the real world. Right. And your yeah. math and your science, you can tell that it matches the real world. Right. So it's, and- it's, is basically they're basically saying ignore the real world. The real world is wrong. The real world is, you know, they're not following the rules as it should be or as we want them to. Or it's, I mean, something to that effect. Yeah, it's it's kind of like look for, for lack of a better phrase and to show my age, right? It's the principal Skinner, right? Like, am I out of touch or is it the children? No, it is the children that are wrong, right? Like this uh-huh. is kind of like the default position of like heaps of classical economists. Like there was a guy who um, teaches at one of the major universities or used to teach at one of the major universities who turned up in the, the MMT Australia group. And we, a bunch of people spent ages trying to talk to him. But the one thing that was just, it was an amazing moment was just he could not seem to get that the account balance with our central bank is the same as the yellow $50 note he puts in his wallet. It, he kept insisting that they were vastly different things. Like, is 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 a credit with the bank in the bank's like deposit account at the central bank, right? So it's not like it's it's not like it's somewhere else, right? And the funny bit is, is that in Australia, I don't know if this is true in the US, but our central bank is also responsible for notes like the, the, the money notes, right? So there's not like two different departments. It's not like money, cash that you put in your pocket is issued by the treasury and like payment systems and computer databases are all operated by the central bank. No, our central bank issues both the the plastic 
notes that you put in your pocket of all sorts of bright colors. And they control the big database that all the private banks trade on daily. They do both. And this guy who was a previous professor of economics just could not see that the only difference between $50 deposit with the central bank in their spreadsheet and $50 in a piece of plastic you put in your wallet is that one of them's in a spreadsheet and one of them's in your wallet. That's it. There's the difference. Like, they are the same. That that went on for weeks. Can you um, want to elaborate on that a little bit, how that, how that happened? Um, so there's a Facebook group for Australian MMT people. I suspect that he got pointed in the direction because we have a few, um, quite a number of Labor Party members. So uh, for the Americans listening, um, the Australian Labor Party is our ostensibly union party that belongs on the left. My own political senses tell me that the Labor Party isn't really quite on the political left, but they're an analogue for the Democrats, sort of, but with a lot more union base. So if you could imagine the Democrats um, and the Democratic Socialists were actually the one party, that's probably where it sits, at least kind of historically. Around when are you, when did this happen? When did this person come in around? Uh, probably about a year ago. Okay. And they've been bouncing around doing that. Um, they even signed up to Bill Mitchell's little online course recently. Um, I was talking oh. to someone else who actually took it. Bill ran a little kind of three-week, hey, this is MMT kind of like online course thing as a, as a, yeah, kind of a I, test I that. We'll talk about that after this, yeah. after this story. Yeah, which sounds great. But I mean, that guy was apparently in there too, caused a ruckus in the, in the chat groups, might have been, might have been kicked out by the people running the course because he was just like not there to learn. Huh. But it was, it was amusing that this guy who keeps on saying that he wants to come in and learn would not learn, would just reject things because that didn't fit the story that he had and wasn't willing to like engage with the story on its own terms. Mm. Um, and look, maybe it makes me odd that my science training has really kind of helped that take an idea on its own terms kind of set up. And look, if it is, then, you know, I'll accept that. That's probably an acceptable kind of byproduct of, of being trained in physics and chemistry and mathematics. But yeah, so if you meet an idea, you've got to kind of take it in the in the setup that it was built and then see whether it works or not. And this guy seemed very, very resistant to meeting any idea on its own terms and then engaging with it. I mean, obviously, he needs to talk with someone who's like you guys are not valid in his mind, essentially, because yep. I mean, he's going into he's he's credentialed. I mean, yep. I, you know, I can't know, but he's credentialed. And so you guys are not credentialed. So your answer is just simply not valid to him. So he needs to talk with someone like Bill or whatever. Right. To be to be told in, I guess, in his language or something. Right. Um, I mean, he's, he's, you know, you, you said but, he's, he's coming in to learn, but he's obviously going into a group of people that he doesn't trust enough to accept what they're saying. Cause he's saying that they're wrong. It kind of, I mean, I, I would have said that while he, while one side of his mouth said he came in to learn, I'd say the other side of his mouth was really just saying, I've come here to lecture you people. 
And that's what his behavior tended to tell us. Is that, and so he uh, could go back to his friends and said, oh, I went in and I tried to learn. Yeah, and I tried and- to learn and they just rejected me out of hand and attacked me at this and this that. Right. So um, like it's a bit like the missionary thing, which I don't know. That's I'm, I'm not trying to attack like religious groups. I've had long affiliations with religious groups, but there's a thing that people talk about where they deliberately send people out deliberately train people to be obnoxious and then send them out into the real world so that then when they engage with normal people, the normal people go, you're kind of obnoxious. Why should we listen to your message? You're really kind of obnoxious. And then the people come back to the church group and go, oh, my gosh, the, the people out there, they're so horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of felt like he was doing a version of that, right, like he was trying to do the missionary thing for us where he's, like, coming out and, like, I'm going to be like, I've got my message and I'm just going to bash people with it until they learn the way that it really works. And we're all just kind of like, like, this is not, <laughs> you're not here to learn. You're just here to be huh. obnoxious. That's weird. Uh, and then he went into the, and then he went into the edX thing yeah. and ha- and basically harassed people and well, he just kind of credentialed in the discussion he because just Bill was not down. in on the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he just doubled down on it. And so I, I heard this from one of the people that I talked to who, um, who from from the bits and pieces? Yeah, as I understand, he works on writing government policies for places in Southeast Asia, right? Like he's not a l- low paid, low ranking, low educated dude. He's he's you know he's pretty sharp and he gets paid well. Um, retired university lecturer comes into the edX thing, and policy writer that I know was like, you know how he was like in our Facebook group? Yes, he was like that in Bill Lake. Bill's like course. He was Got like it. that. Why was he like that? And we were all going, eh? Eh? um. So yeah, no, it was. So you um, go, you go and talk to people low. You go and talk to lay people. Yeah. And then you pretend that you've gotten definitive information and MMT is flawed when you have not <laughs> spoken to the people that you need to speak to in order to actually get the information that you want to get in the way that you want to get it. Yeah, you talk, and then, you talk with little. I mean, that's a common that's a common tactic. Right like on Twitter, you you talk with some you talk with some self proclaimed MMT supporter, right? And some academic mainstream academic will talk with some MMT supporter and then use that against MMT itself. Yeah, because they haven't gone out to talk with an academic. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sorry if I asked most of you people how to do like ligand field theory. Like most people who are listening to this would just be like, "I understand none of those words together. Why did you? What? What are you doing to the English language?" Right? <laughs> like, you know, like there's there's stuff that I've learned, and and if I wanted to explain stuff to you, I could, and it's it's not impossible to explain it to you. But if if a lay person is trying to explain to like any expert. Hey, this is this is how I think things work, and the expert turns around and doesn't recognize that. Hey, this is a lay person, and I've got a lot more skill in this area, so I should probably just like chill the flip out a bit. Then, yeah, like they're really, really jerkish about it. I think on on the whole kind of like jerky academic line too. There was um there was a professor from England who did some who did a takedown video of MMT. And look, those things are notorious for being kind of all over the place. But I mean, <laughs> but, but before you continue, before you continue, actually, yeah. I my, I asked uh, Randy Ray, yeah, uh, and it's actually the first minute of the of that episode, uh, part two of that episode with him. Um, I asked him, I have never seen 
uh, basically there hasn't been a major change in MMT. There hasn't been a criticism which has really landed. And I'm wondering at what point did MMT stabilize? Was there ever a point where there was like a major outside criticism that really changed it? Or did Warren Mosor come in where it was just 100% solid right then and there? Like, it just seems invulnerable. You know, there's all of these criticisms, but none of them seem to land. It, it just seems to be very solid. At what point did it, like, officially sort of, you know, this is MNT, this came together. And then at that point, were there any major changes made? You know, what's the history, I guess, the timeline of that from that point of view? <laughs> Um, no, none of the criticisms has ever held up. I, I, I say that flatly, never had any influence. Ha, what was, what has MMT ever had a substantial critique that changed MMT? And he said, no, he said, no, MMT yeah. is basically bulletproof. And, and so, so you're, you know, so this, obviously if they have something that, you know, takes down MMT, it has to be flawed. It has to be flawed. Well, so go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Like, and and so when the, the bit that just like stunned me, right? Like it absolutely floored me when he dropped this in the middle of it. I was talking various bits and pieces and through my long and varied career history, I've had some engagement with accounting as an actual field, right? Like I've worked with accountants and I've learned some accounting, a very small amount, enough to be able to get myself by in like 95% of situations. So I'm talking with this guy and he quite literally turns around and says, well, economics informs how accounting works. It's like, wow. Like, <laughs> economists tell accountants how things work. Like a theories are right, the world is wrong. So when basic accounting and being chartered practicing accountants, right? CPA. I don't know if they do the same thing in the US, but this thing's like three years worth of coursework on top of a normal job kind of stuff, right? Like it's it's hardcore become an accountant. I worked with people who did that and, and knew what they were on about. And it's like, no, those people don't listen to economists to do accounting. They have their own separate technical field for how accounting works from the ground up and it, it, there's a crap load of basic arithmetic in there that's like 95 percent of accounting is just careful arithmetic and you want to tell me that you know your classical economics contradicts these people um how do you measure anything that you do how does your economics work if it can't agree with a measurement system. That's like saying like physics disagrees with rulers, <laughs> right? Like chemistry disagrees with like mass balances, right? Like a, like a, a set of kitchen scales and chemistry. No, they disagree with each other. Chemistry is right. And, and the kitchen scales are completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Like this makes no sense. If, if your idea of the world can't even hang on to and handle like a basic measurement system, what the heck is going on? Well, you were talking about the video takedown, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. So bring bring it back to that. Sure. Um, so, well, so this conversation came out of that. This guy's video 
was just, it was painful from the get-go because he said he was, you know, the video says he's talking about MMT. He says he's talking about MMT. He might as well be talking about the Jungle Book, right? Like mm-hmm. it would, it just did not match at all. So I just went and started asking him some questions on Twitter. Do you, right? uh, do you recall who this is specifically? Um, you said it was in England. You said Hearn, it was. A, a- I think it's Hearn or Kern was the surname. Okay. I'll just check because, you know, I've got it here. Let's see. The, the, the face will. Yeah, there we are. Professor John Hearn, H-E-A-R-N. Oh, I've spoken with him on Twitter. Right. He's got his opinions. Yeah, he, he has some opinions, and that's fine. Like, he's he, he's got opinions on banking and finance and economics and stuff, and that's fine. He, he runs his YouTube thing and all the rest of it. So I just came along and just asked questions, right? Like, did the – basically cracked out my, my science training, which is, okay – which of these premises doesn't work? Why do we get this answer? What are you assuming here? What does this assumption mean? How he's this... happy to talk, I recall. Yeah, my he, experience. he chatted for heaps, but then like he dropped a huge, this huge clangor right in the middle of it, which was that economics tells accounting how it works and you know, accounting isn't a measurement system. Um, economics knows what it's doing. Accounting just takes orders was kind of the, the, the level of like position on it. And one of my friends from my hobbies turned around and said, like, I kind of only have a little bit of idea what you're talking about, but that other guy is a really entitled jerk. I'm like, <laughs> right? Like, wow, you, you don't even know what the topic is. And you get that this guy seems like he's being like a jerk to people and really looking down on people and like quite heavy on the hubris. It's like, no one had a bad word about Richmond Feynman, right? Other than maybe he liked smoking weed too much and playing too much bongos. But I mean, like, that's like the worst of it with Feynman, right? Like, his lectures are still held up to be some of the best out there. He was, you know, like a science communicator. And there are plenty of science communicators there in the public domain talking about stuff. And like, entitled hubristic jerk is generally not used to describe any of them by just <laughs> a random stranger walking past. Mm. it's just yeah so no that whole interaction was just it was kind of galling in a just wow how do you how do you get that experienced in the field without dealing with like handling like are the assumptions of my work actually correct Mm. (laughs) like okay uh uh, two 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 things. One, uh, I want to ask you about edX. So you took edX? Uh, no, no, I didn't actually. Um, I just oh, know. I, no, I didn't. I know a heap of people that did. Um, so oh, it was okay. very big in the MMT Australia group, right? There was probably, maybe, I think the groups maybe got like 150 people, and we're talking like 30 or 40 of the most frequent posters all took that course. So um, yes. I heard lots about it. I didn't actually do it. I. I when when I when he said he was putting out a course for new people, I was kind of like, like I'll see, I'll I'll wait and I'll hear if there's stuff in there that's that different to the stuff that he's put out on his blog. But I figure if I can, I figure I can like wait on getting it and and see how it goes. Um, Bill can be a great, you know, public speaker and lecturer, and I'm I'm sure that when he's trying to teach to a to a general audience, he will he will hit the nail on the head. But you know his blog isn't aimed at the general audience, and 
that's where I dived in because I had nowhere else to read from at that point in time. And mm -hmm. that's where I landed. Okay. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a permanent course. It's, it's, it was not something that you needed to take at that moment. I mean, there was uh, an element of that because, you know, they only, they, the very first, as they were yeah. first releasing it, yeah. it was being released one week at a time. But now that it's out there, it is a permanent, it's the first MMT ed course. Okay. And I believe that you could take it at any time. That's good. Like, um, so, and, I, and so he, uh, Bill has been setting up his MMT ed for years. Yeah. And this is the first official course for MMT ed. Yeah. Um, and it's, and that whole program is intended to be free. And I believe whenever you want. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if it's not free, I think, so, so I think you can, that, that was the bit, that's the bit that I remember. So you can do the course for nothing, but you'll get no kind of, I completed the course paperwork type stuff. You know, there's no sort of, there's no certificates and no kind of like this, that or something or those, but you can just go do the course. But if you want the actual like bit of paper, then yeah, I think there's like a small fee, which basically I covers. Pay 50, I pay 50 bucks for a yeah. certificate, right. which I have not, which I have not received. I guess I have to go out and get it. I don't know, but, <laughs> um, and then also the $50 also allows you to take a quiz at the end of every week. Yeah. Right, like, um, it's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's that stuff out there, and and I and, and I have a feeling that you probably recall one or two of my posts freaking out about those quizzes. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do remember a few of those things going around. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and after experiencing, um, like, a mate of mine at university did a course where the end of year exam was a hundred multiple choice questions, and heaps <laughs> of people were like, "Oh, that's going to be so easy," and my brain is immediately gone. No, this is a thirteen week university exam with a hundred multiple choice questions, those things are going to be manic. Like there's, there's going to be questions there that just destroy you. Like, mm -hmm. no, do not do that course. But, you know. It was, uh, I actually speak, I, it was very, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have the, I would say kind of hardcore accounting Sure. experience yeah like I, I get the concepts but it's hard for yeah. me to follow along you know sure. with, with in complicated accounting yeah uh it didn't really go into accounting but but it was rather intense the uh the the concepts that i did not understand and i still you know have a little i have a better feeling for but i still don't really understand yeah. was like gdp real gdp output gap those are right. three concepts that, yeah. that kind of got me yeah. um and the yeah. quizzes themselves went beyond his teaching yeah, which was and, also which was also rather and like the real subtleties of, yeah. you know, what is officially measured and not measured is not easy. It's, it's no. not obviously easy, and that and, that and, was like you needed to understand that. Yeah, and Bill, look, Bill's blog. If, if you're ever worried whether you're good or bad at MMT, don't use Bill's blog quizzes as a guide because, uh -huh. like, I know I kind of know what I'm doing like most of the time with MMT, like. I'd say probably like 75, 80% of the time, I'm kind of pretty close to the mark and I do Bill's quizzes and like I'll regularly get like heaps of stuff wrong. Oh, so, yeah. so like Bill's, Bill's short little quizzes uh, are pretty hardcore. So like, <laughs> if, if you find them hard, like chill out, everyone does. Right? But it, like, but it, what was stressful was that the first week I got a 60. I just oh, nice. threw the questions. I couldn't, a 60%. And nice. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. almost failed. Hey. Uh, and so, th so the first week was two questions that I just, I had no clue. I just had no clue. And I was freaking yeah. out because I, yeah. I was worried that, you know, you have to get a 50% yeah. 
to get yeah, a sure. certificate. And I'm like, okay, yeah. great. As long as I don't fail, I can get a certificate. And the very yep. first week I get a 60. But luckily, <laughs> luckily it wasn't nearly as hard <laughs> the rest of them. But. Yeah. But like, uh, look, Bill's a bit like that. Um, and he, he doesn't take some prisoners on some stuff. And that's a good thing and a bad thing for exactly the same reason. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, so, I definitely. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm curious of, of your thoughts after you, after yeah, you take I mean, it. But for, for at least for me, I, I got a lot out of it, and it was yeah. it required several hours of work each week yeah, or focus yeah, each week. Yeah. He actually assigned a paper. He assigned a, a full paper on the first week, and so. nice. Yeah. So. Um, so the other bit the we were talking about was the staying in the lane. Staying I in think. the lane. Actually, let me let me let me uh, send you a link of something you posted from Uh-oh. Stephen Hale, and I Uh-oh. and I. <laughs> no, I think it. That's <laughs> no, fine. It's fine. Like people quoting my past immediately gets me worried. Like what crackpot well, thing have I said? Right, the internet luckily, remembers. This is, luckily, is just something you shared from Stephen Hale, so I, I won't reveal ah, okay. the <laughs> I won't reveal the salacious. Stuff. Right. So. So I just sent it to you. So just t- read that post. It's a short post that you shared yeah. with Stephen Hale that relates to staying in your lane, which I found interesting. So okay. take, a, take a moment to read that. Yeah, sure. So um, for those that don't know, Stephen Hale is an MMT academic who is a specialist in banking systems, um, particularly central banking, but all sorts of banking stuff is his is his thing. Um, he's done stuff for the Bank of England and some other places like that. He's got a, a lovely Middle England accent when you get to hear him. So his post was, uh, some people I respect think you should value our ecosystem in financial terms and then manage a portfolio of natural assets the way a fund manager might use a portfolio theory to manage a diversified portfolio of financial assets. Uh, I could not disagree with them more profoundly. Never mind the fact that this buys into the notion of a simple link between GDP per capita and well-being which should have been dismissed by now in all high-income countries, where there is demonstrably no such link. Uh, Never mind that they habitually use a measure of ecological footprint, which allows rich countries to export their pollution to poor countries, allowing them to claim that ecological impact does not rise as GDP rises beyond a certain point. My biggest problem with this approach is the idea that the financial economics of portfolio management implies the safe management of anything, let alone the natural environment. Portfolio theory requires measurable risks and known probability distributions, or in other words, the absence of complexity, non-linearities, feedbacks, and fundamental uncertainties. The complexity and feedbacks and resulting uncertainties of financial systems is the reason we have so many endogenously driven financial crises in our history. The thing about financial crises is you can recover from them. Our natural environment is far more complex, has far more feedbacks and non-linearities and connections, and is as a result far more uncertain than our financial system. So if you can't trust economists to manage the financial system so that it remains healthy and robust, why would you imagine that by financializing ecosystem services, you'll be able to trust them to manage that far more complex portfolio? Uh, it is a profound mistake to financialize the natural world, in my opinion. Instead, we should identify where it is safe to be at a big margin to allow for unavoidable uncertainty, if we can, and then set limits on what we can tolerate. Dollars shouldn't come into the limits. Then we should take a step back and identify what we need to allow people to have the best possible chance of a good, secure, just, engaged life. 
To an extent, this has been done in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, but it is done better in Kate Rayworth's donut, which can be and is applied at national, regional and local levels. Uh, what is someone who has spent a career training finance professionals doing say we ought to not be applying the tools of financial management to our natural environment? I'm saying that it is entirely inappropriate, misleading and liable to bias the narrative policies and outcomes in potentially dangerous ways. That was a bonus. I was not expecting you to actually read it in the recording. I'd... High school teacher habit. Read the thing. You read it out loud to the class, right? Um, no problem. So, um, so, so, I mean, basically this is, this is how economists are not staying in their lane. This is how economists are basically having their tentacles in every possible facet of life when yeah. they should be staying out of that. And it also gives them veto power over everything. Right. And and so part of this is just, look, I, I don't – people – lots of people view neoliberalism to mostly just be kind of like some handling money ideas and ideas on inflation. From reading various people about it and where it's come from and what it's going through, I don't view it as just like, hey, this is how money behaves. Um, I tend to view it very much as like a whole philosophical structure um, that covers like political economy and economy and relationship with the environment and a whole bunch of stuff like that. So what Stephen's saying is, look, it feels right for other stuff that and other kind of positions that I've had, but like, what's what's the thing that I'm looking for here? Um, physics, while everyone thinks that there's loads of physics that is 100% certain and fixed, some of our best and leading physicists at many, many times have said either the new idea is completely and utterly wrong or here is my best crack. I know that this best crack is completely wrong. And if you don't know who those two physicists are, one of them is Isaac Newton and the other one is Albert Einstein. And so like at one of the physics conferences about how things work in quantum dynamics, Einstein's sitting there because you know, hey, you have Einstein in the room for this kind of thing. Uh, and when, I, th I think it was, was it, I'm not sure it was Schrodinger, I think it might have been someone else, got up and basically said, hey, we think that particles don't exist in a fixed specific location, but they kind of, they take up a space and there's probability and statistics to do with that. Albert Einstein made the famous quote, God does not play dice, which when you go do the physics, actually, sorry, Einstein, um, apparently God does play dice. He really likes to play dice. And with Newton, in his own lifetime, Isaac Newton knew that his theory of gravity was wrong. Because it was, someone, someone recently said that, that the theory of gravity, uh, the theory of gravity was, is, is accurate, but only in a primitive sense. It wasn't deep enough. And Einstein deepened, yeah. took that and made it deeper and more accurate. Yeah. So, so, so to give you an idea how... Well, well okay. The, let, me, let me rephrase yeah. that before you go yeah. on. No, no. Newton knew that it was the best he could possibly explain it. He knew that yes. it wasn't, that he was missing something important. But what yes. he was saying was the best that he could, given... Yeah. The yeah. tools of the time. Yeah. So Newton said, this is my best crack. It's close, but it's nothing like right. Right looks way different to what this is. 
And the reason that he knew that what he'd written wasn't right um, is, a, is an observation that people have made since basically they got the ability to make a telescope, um, which is the thing called the transit of Mercury. It sounds all fancy, but basically Mercury is closer to the sun than us. So every so often it goes between us and the sun and there'll be a little black dot that goes across the sun. Now, Newton knew that his work was wrong because every time, not just sometimes, every time he predicted when Mercury would go between us and the sun, it was wrong. And it's not like it was out by two minutes, right? We're talking like out by five hours, which is not for, like for the level of precision that Newton had, right? Like Newton and his friends are figuring out roughly the mass of Jupiter just by roughly how far away it is, right? Like these guys were super accurate on heaps of stuff, but they couldn't get when Mercury goes between the sun and the earth accurate at all. Like it was always out and it wasn't out by like, oh, we're consistently like two out. We think it's going to happen at like 12 o'clock and it keeps on happening at two. No, one day we say it should happen at midday. It happens at two. Next day we say it should happen at midday. It happens at 6.55 in the morning. Like they just could not get the answer out and they knew it. And to a certain extent, Stephen's saying exactly the, like the same thing and, and a different thing at the same time. So he's saying that, Look, finance and economics does a really good job of talking about finance and economics, but trees are not economics. Like trees are not finances. These are vastly different things and trying to pretend that us who are doing finance and economics and banking can turn around and use our not particularly perfect finance ideas to somehow do better than climate scientists and ecologists and marine biologists and people who have spent as much time of their life studying that stuff like does that like how does that make sense to anyone look let's let's take other other options like Ayrton Senna would be a terrible taxi driver what who Ayrton Senna right like uh, Ayrton Senna was a, a, a Formula One race car driver he won heaps of races like he would drive cars that travel at 350 kilometers an hour, like 210 miles per hour. Okay. And he would not hit walls and he would win races. But I do not want Ayrton Senna driving a taxi for me. Like I want the guy down the street who knows every street in my neighborhood. I want him driving my taxi because, because even though they're driving, they're two totally different things. Like one is how do I get this high tech, basically bit of aeronautical engineering with a motor in it to travel at incredibly high speeds around tight corners to maximize right. it at all at all times at all times to maximize the speed that it does and minimize like the everything else to make sure you come in first each and every time as opposed to the guy who like his job has always been you know, varying degrees of here's an old person who lives four streets over hey there's three people who've come out from the bar you know, come out from the bar a little bit drunk and they want to get home. I need to get them home before they, like, it's a whole different kind of driving and thinking about things. It, well, and, actually, it, it is kind of, it, it's similar just in the sense that the taxi driver in New York also needs to maximize at every moment, but 
their roads aren't clear. So maximizing right. at every moment has to consider the the, the traffic and the, yeah. the traffic well, lights and so on. Yeah. What what a taxi driver does is a different, a wholly different structural idea, right? The taxi driver's idea is I need to get from point A to point B through a busy, messy system with people who may or may not want to deal with the versions of like driving that I would do, right? Huh, I, interesting. You know what I mean? Like the racetrack, it's not the driver, it's, not, it's the context in which he is doing it. The right. racetrack is completely open and designed in a different way as opposed exactly. to a city. And so is the vehicle that the race driver is in. Yeah. Right? The taxi driver in New York, he's driving a normal car through messy conditions with people who are in various stages of messy themselves. Whereas a racetrack driver is just one guy, one car. It's the only car that he drives. Like all this, all the parameters for how he does driving completely change between the two, huh. right? Even though it looks like it's driving. So if you're like thinking, how do I manage finances? Well, like Stephen says, financial crises happen regularly. They're not a bug. They're a feature. This is how our- yeah, right. and they're caused by those people who want control over all of these things. Right. And and so, well, and it's also caused by human behavior, right? Like there's a big chunk of the Minsky cycle, which is something we talk about in MMT a fair bit, and I hear Stephen talk about it reasonably often when I listen to his stuff. The Minsky cycle, if you boil it down, like to its really smallest idea, the Minsky cycle is the good times just keep on rolling until right. they don't. Right, of course, like, and, and people are blind to that, and and that's the whole point is that these economists don't acknowledge that. Right, right, and and that and and so the idea that humans will avoid this thought that the good times will always roll that doesn't make sense. We've we've never behaved like that. We don't behave like that. Like if you have us, if we have five years of good stuff happening back to back. We, we start getting used to this and start behaving like it's going to keep going for the next 10 years. Right. And then it doesn't. And then everything comes in a huge heap. And, and, and we know this about ourselves, but somehow our economics forgets it, right? And we want to let the people that can manage to forget the fact that every like 15 to 20 years, we think that the good times are going to keep rolling and then they don't. We want to let them tell us how we handle the environment, which right. frankly is a scarily more complicated place than finance economy. Because for starters, like what is it? Like every two years we dredge up a new species out of the bottom of the ocean? Like we don't even know what's out there yet. We right. find um, it's a, but the whole point is the, the, the major point is that yeah. economics we invented. And well, kind the of. environment we don't and we didn't invent. Right. But so, so it's the, largely, this, it's largely in economics is largely a human created concept. The environment is almost exclusively not a human created concept. Right. And well, so, so this is where I'm going to get into that kind of funny bit about uh, me about science, right? So, if we're going to do economics as a science, what we have to think is economics is.
Today I talk with sixth-year MMT activist Andrew Churguin. Andrew graduated from the University of Sydney with a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry and Pure Mathematics and a Master's in Secondary Teaching. Andrew's introduction to Modern Money Theory, or MMT, was in 2015 when he stumbled on the blog of University of Newcastle economics professor and original MMT developer Bill Mitchell. Andrew spent the next nine months reading five years of Bill's blog posts. For those who are familiar with the blog, they will understand how this is no small feat. The heart of our conversation, however, was influenced by a February 2021 Facebook post by Stephen Hale, the text of which can be found in the show notes. Stephen is an economics professor at the University of Adelaide and the author of the 2018 book, Economics for Sustainable Prosperity, which is a good introduction to MMT. In the post, Stephen discusses how neoclassical economists don't stay in their lane. What this means is that economists impose themselves onto and dominate conversations about healthcare when they should be led by healthcare professionals and their patients. They dominate conversations about education that should be led by educators and their students. And to bring it back to today's episode, neoclassical economists dominate conversations about mitigating the climate crisis that should be led by experts in the field, such as climate scientists, energy specialists, chemists, and so on. This domination is in the form of forcing all conversation and concepts to be expressed in financial terms, as exemplified by the how are you going to pay for it question. This essentially gives those in power and their economists veto power over every facet of our lives, subjecting us to their biases, ignorance, and ideology. It prevents the true experts from ever being able to complete their highly complex and critical conversations, and it also keeps the public unaware of the depths of the problems they face. Finance is a purely human-created concept. Therefore, purely financial crises are also purely human-created concepts. This means we can prevent and mitigate financial crises merely by choosing to do so. It also implies that the Great Depression and the Great Financial Crisis are largely man-made disasters caused and exacerbated by the actions and inactions of those in power and their economists. And yet this is who we allow to dominate highly complex conversations on topics that are largely outside of human control, such as mitigating the climate crisis. In other words, if neoclassical economists can't get their own house in order, then why do we allow them to be in charge of every house? And of course, when problems are framed in financial terms, then problems that face the rich are always more profitable to solve than those that face the poor. An analogy I keep coming back to is viewing a child only through their report card. Doing this will do nothing to help a student if she is hungry and homeless and suffering from abuse. It is unlikely those problems will even be seen. In the same way, forcing the climate crisis and other real-world problems to be seen through a financial lens basically guarantees that those problems will never be acknowledged let alone properly and fully dealt with. 
part two of our conversation turns decidedly dark as we consider our fate as a species and our choices as parents of young children if we continue to leave the climate crisis in the hands of neoclassical economists. There's no solving a problem if you don't understand its depth. So buckle up. But that's for next week. For now, let's start part one of my conversation with Andrew Churgwin.